Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. And I'm Emma Vigeland. This week on Ring of Fire, Zephyr Teachout, Fordham Law Professor and author of Break 'em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money, joins me to discuss President Biden's anti-monopoly executive orders and why they may actually be kind of a big deal. And Heather Digby-Parton will help us break down all the top news items of the week. I want to say thank you to everyone who has subscribed to the free show and a special thank you to everyone who decided to support the program and upgrade to the membership podcast. Why upgrade to the member show? Well, for starters, you help support this program. But also, you get bonus content you won't hear anywhere else. You can head over to rofpodcast.com and sign up today. This week's bonus content, my colleague Emma Vigeland talks with historian Rick Perlstein, who tells us that the streak of authoritarianism we see in the Republican Party, and maybe streak might be even too narrow of a word, existed long before January 6th. So, Heather, here we are. Um, we are in that zone. We've been talking about it a lot, frankly, the uh, the notion of Joe Biden's second 100 days. And, um, and and we are now in the midst of it. The the budget uh, committee has essentially agreed, which is, you know, I'm not sure how much that's worth. I guess we will find out soon. But the budget committee in the Senate has agreed on a uh, $3.5 trillion um, uh, infrastructure bill. Um, And just to sort of put the top line number in context, um, Joe Biden had first talked about a 5.1 or so or $2 trillion uh, two-part bill. And... uh, and then we saw that split in half, basically in $2.6 trillion, $2.5 trillion tranches, one more of like hard infrastructure, although it include about $400 billion for elder care. And then one that was more like a family infrastructure. Um, that was the opening salvo. And then we had stuff like Joe Manchin say, I'm, I'm actually for, you know, a four trillion dollars or, or a six, you know, five trillion dollars. Um, and then when and there was a there was a stalled attempt at a Republican version. And then there was a new bipartisan group that came up and that bipartisan group essentially agreed it was a gang of 10, although you really need a gang of. 15, because 10 of them needs to come from the Republicans, but be that as it may, they came up with what amounts to about a $600 billion new money infrastructure bill, arguably a little bit more than that. But let's, you know, the $600 billion is the one that the Democrats are working off of. And so uh, Biden's, you know, the the entire package as it stands now is about $4.1 trillion. And we should say, as that bipartisan group was coming together, for their one trillion, Bernie Sanders sort of out of the blue said, actually, I'm interested in six trillion dollars. And I think that was crucial in in holding down the sort of 
um, the the left flank because we ended up with a with a with a three point five trillion dollar uh, bill coming out of a you know a committee chaired by a guy who said he wanted six trillion. Um, and we're going to, you know, if these two things pass, we're looking at at least four point one trillion dollars of infrastructure. We'll get into sort of what we know about what's in it. But just staying on a top line. This is the biggest investment in America in one piece of legislation or two a two step legislation, if you will, that. I think it's happened certainly in my lifetime. I think in both our lifetimes. Uh, I mean, this is, and Bernie Sanders, you know, advertised it that way. He said, this is pretty extraordinary. And, and it is, hasn't happened yet. But if, but if it does, this is a big deal. This is, this is really a big effing deal uh, for Joe Biden. That, that's the first thing that I wrote on my blog when I said, you know, it's a BFD. Um, in, in a real sense of the word, because, uh, I, you know, we haven't seen this. And to see it under these circumstances where you have this narrow majority in the Congress, you have a larger majority in the country, of course, but you have a sort of a, a, a will to get it done because Democrats have been building toward this for a very long time. And I think it's very important to sort of put this out there. And I'll just be brief. This didn't come out of nowhere. Democrats have been building this stuff up for the last 15 years, you know, really maybe 20, where, you know, there had been a consensus for a long, long time that, oh, you can't do this. This whole neoliberal consensus about using, you know, the private sector to advance progressive goals. I mean, this came out of the 1980s and the Reagan revolution and Democrats tried that. And when, when, and it didn't work. And when Obama came in and everybody, you know, we all, yeah, everybody loved him, thought he was terrific as a person, but they had not yet settled on how to, how to get anything done. And so there was a trauma coming out of that. And I think for the first time in a very, very long time, people started listening to other people for the first time and other ideas and new ways of doing things and old ways of doing things. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders is talking about stuff he's been talking about for 50 years. So, I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't that new, but having said that, where, you know, what we've come up with here, I think is is pretty amazing. And I, I think Sanders gets a lot of credit partially. I think people underestimated his negotiating skill because, you know, as chairman of the budget committee, this is a powerful guy very, very powerful. And what he managed to do was get that committee together, which included a bunch of people who are not nearly as far left as he is. Mm-hmm. And when he put out that six trillion, you know, number, I think it did hold down the left, you know, for sure, kind of said, hey, trust me, you know, I'm with you. But it also kind of gave a signal to the the centrists in there, which was kind of like, hey, look, you know, we've got a whole bunch of people over here and you guys aren't in charge at the moment. OK, you're not going to be able to pull your stuff about, you know, inflation or whatever else where, you know, people are starting to wring their hands over. So I think that he's played his position very effectively. And second of all, the two tranches, which, you know, we all had a lot of questions at first. We were kind of going, why? You know, what? what's that? Why bother with this bipartisan thing? But what it's ended up doing, I think, it, it the, in, in order to get that bipartisan thing, which I don't know why we needed to, but there seems to be a belief, at least in the part of the administration, that it would be beneficial to them politically 
to have part of this done in a bipartisan fashion. And even Mitch McConnell's getting wobbly on it. And he was down in Kentucky bragging about yeah. bringing home the bacon in the COVID relief bill. So there, there seems to be some benefit in their minds that they could do it. I, I'm a little bit skeptical about that. But right. having said that, doing the bipartisan bill at the same time that they were doing this other tranche, as you put it, um, John Tester, who's, you know, I mean, he's a middle of the road kind of guy. And he was he said, you know, hey, look, having this out there keeps those guys on board because otherwise they know that if they don't do it, we're going to fold it into this and we're ready right. to do it. And so all of this, I'm kind of, I mean, again, we don't know we what's going to happen. See. The whole right. thing can fall apart completely. Yep. And I would never bet uh, against the Democrats, you know, being Lucy in the football on these sort of things. But so far as a negotiation, which we, you know, you and I and nobody listening has any real insight other right. than what is being reported and whispered in people's ears and everybody's taking positions for a variety of reasons. But so far, this negotiation has gone way better than I expected. And if it comes out even close to what you're talking about, a $4 trillion infrastructure plan, which, by the way, well, we, is totally necessary. We've got buildings falling down. We have bridges falling down. We've got sinkholes happening all over the country. This country is falling apart. So that's just the hard infrastructure part. The other part of it is also necessary, as we saw during the pandemic. You've yes. got people in nursing homes who, you know, they've got, you know, 17 patients to one person. I mean, all this stuff, elder care and and Medicare and all the rest of it that they're trying to shore up this country, which that neoliberal experiment under both Democrats and Republicans left this country way, way weaker than it was before in just a you know material way. I mean, I'm not even talking about the politics, which, right. of course. Or anyway. So anyway, I just, you know, I'm I'm surprised as you are that we've gotten this far. And 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 let me just add one more thing about that six trillion position that Bernie Sanders took. Um, what really struck me when they came out of that budget, um, that budget uh, meeting, committee meeting and, and announced that they had made this deal earlier in the week. I can't remember if it was to Monday or Tuesday or I, I have no idea. Uh, but. They um, Mark Warner was there. And of course, Mark Warner is there talking. The first thing <laughs> I mean, just the mentality of this is really stunning to me. But but nevertheless, he comes out and he is overjoyed and and exclaims, we we we've got it all paid for. And I mean, <clears throat> the fact of the matter is. We're, we're spending American dollars that we print and right. there is it's always paid for. <laughs> um, and, you know, the idea that it's a, a a burden on taxpayers, we have the ability to forgive our debt to ourselves. Um, but the fact that he's on board with it, I think, you know, short makes it really, really hard for a guy like Manchin or cinema yeah to come up with an argument as to why not to support it. And in fact, you know, it's possible that Mark Warner could be in there, you know, like representing uh mansion. We have no idea what oh, their relationship. I, I believe he probably is. And, honestly. And, and, and it's very possible. And, but the, the ability for mansion cinema and Warner and Chris Coons and the lot of them to come out and say like, 
we shortchain we were able to to we rip brought him 2. down. trillion dollars out of out of bernie sanders i think you know i think that's what 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 sanders was doing me too you, you know like i think sanders is aware and i think they're all aware i mean who knows how frank they are with each other about this stuff who knows mm -hmm. but um but i think sanders is aware that like look um I'm doing a big disservice to the moderates if I come in with a number that yeah. is, you know, where we need to be, because um, I need to be seen as the guy who's like crazy, you know, cr crazy Bernie. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and and and, you know, Sanders was there during the ACA uh, when when the left said, OK, let's do a Medicare buy in at 55. Joe Lieberman's on board with that. And then as soon as the left says that, Joe Lieberman says, I'm not interested in that anymore. Uh, and so Sanders stuck out a position that was like that. I think he knew you're never going to get here. And, you know, this is not the first time he's done this over the course of the past six months. He was the one who was out there saying two thousand dollar checks. Yeah. And and so when. Donald Trump came out and said $2,000 checks and basically gave license to the Democrats to embrace that and almost a compulsion to embrace that, and mm -hmm. which I think, you know, got them control of the Senate. They didn't have to deal with a narrative that they're signing on to, to, to Donald Trump's bill. They could say, well, we're signing on. Bernie Sanders was out there first with it, and he caucuses with us. He was one of our presidential candidates. And so... Sanders has been able to do this on both ends. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, I, I, I mean, it, it really if you go back to how people perceived Bernie Sanders six years ago and to think that if this happens, that both as the chairman of the budget uh, committee, but also just to set that marker to know what role he plays in the caucus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we haven't even gotten into the details and, and we don't know exactly what's in that deal. I don't even know if the Senate knows exactly what's in that three point five trillion dollars. The way they do it is they get that top line. And when the reconciliation, they send it out into different things. But um, but one of the things that really sticks out from I mean, you've got universal pre-K, you've got uh, daycare, you've got uh, free community college. And then. One of the, the, the things that are, that it, that is, you know, that I'm looking at very carefully, like we, we had heard earlier reporting that the expansion, you know, remember Joe Biden ran on a 60 year old, uh, Medicare, uh, dropping the, the, the age of Medicare down to 60 years old. Um, uh, Sanders had run on 55. And there were reports like a week or two ago. People were sort of giving up on the dropping the Medicare age, but we were going to expand the benefits, including dental, including vision, including hearing. And it is unclear to me right now where they are on that. The, 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 there are reports that uh, Pramila Jayapal was told that they're dropping the age to 60 and expanding. Nancy Pelosi in an interview with Addie Barkin had said, we don't necessarily have the money to drop the age, but we have the money to expand the benefits. Now, let me just put my, 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 my biases out there. I, I believe because I'm someone who, who, who wants to have Medicare for all some form of single payer system that would include everybody that, um, 
the best way to achieve that goal is to drop the age. Mm -hmm. I mean, at this juncture, obviously, the best way to do it is to include everybody in it. But in terms of those two options, I want to get people in the boat. And then and then the the political force and power is to improve the conditions in the boat. Um, If you improve the conditions in the boat first, it doesn't necessarily at all provide power to include more people on the boat. Um, And in fact, it becomes maybe it becomes a roadblock to uh, bringing more people on the boat. Right. Because then you can threaten the people who are already on the boat. Hey, conditions on the boat are going to be worse if (laughs) you bring more people in. And so uh, for me personally, I would like to see them, um, uh, you know, drop the age. But I want to get your take on that when we return. We're going to take a break here. We'll come back. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then I want to touch on, you know, a couple of the other stories of the week. You know, the fact that um, supposedly uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, uh, the the top general in the country, was concerned about uh, uh, some form of military coup uh, (laughs) or something to that effect. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back just after this. So, Heather, in the uh, first segment, we're talking about the announcement this week that the Senate Budget Committee, which includes Bernie Sanders and Mark Warner, which is important because that's almost like an A to Z type of situation in the Senate, uh, has agreed on a three point five trillion dollar bill. The details of which are not quite clear yet, but we know that it involves, you know, um, you know, universal pre-K and child care and elder care and a paid leave and uh, a whole host of things that I think uh, the left has been clamoring for for decades. And and we're way behind the rest of the industrialized uh, um, world. Um, and this is not to speak of the sort of hard infrastructure that is supposedly coming out of the bipartisan bill. And Chuck Schumer, apparently this week, has decided to jam the Republicans a little bit, speed up this process, make them take a, a procedural vote uh, later uh you know, you know, maybe at the end of the this week or uh, the beginning of next week, I should say, rather, um, that will maybe set the table for this. We're going to wait and see on that. But uh, one of the things to come out of this infrastructure bill is there's some there's a lack of clarity at this juncture uh, as to what will happen with Medicare. Will Medicare be um, enhanced with a benefits, vision, dental, hearing or Will it be um, or will it be the the eligibility age will be lowered or both? Um, And that's going to be interesting, along with, uh, I think, an attempt to federalize those states that have not expanded their Medicaid, which is also really crucial. Uh, But so what's your take on that? For me, I just stated earlier that I, I would like to see if it's an either or situation, drop the age, drop the age. Um, and get more people in the system because that creates more political will to improve the system. Um, well, it's interesting that you say that. And I had heard the Jayapal comment as well. I'm not sure. Sh- I hadn't heard the one from Pelosi. So obviously, you know, there's still some back and forth on this. Um, but there's a reason for it. And I'm not sure people are aware of it. The, the new Pew poll um, that went back and examined and analyzed the 2020 election came out a week or so ago. And it, you know, everybody heard about, you know, the, the Democrats losing the certain numbers of the Hispanic vote and the black vote. And, you know, we all talked about the white men in the suburbs, et cetera, et cetera. 
But this poll also broke down the age demographics in a way that I hadn't seen before. And it's very, very interesting because it turns out that the baby boomers born between 1947 and 1964, uh, the two parties split that cohort, which is totally unexpected because people expect the, you know, the baby boom and the older people to be to have voted for Donald Trump. It's not true. Only half of them did. And the only group that he got demographically altogether was the silent generation, which is Joe Biden's generation, yeah. 75 and above. The reason that I think that they're looking at Medicare this way about expanding benefits, I mean, this is crass political stuff, but it's very, very smart. And it's also a necessity anyway, because Medicare is inadequate. It's not covering things that pe well, people need. You know, you need vision care, you need dental care, you need that kind of stuff. I think that they are looking at really trying to boost this and hopefully in, in both ways, lowering it. That's the lowest age of the baby boom now is, is hitting uh, their 60s. Yep. And the rest of it, the large group there, they are in their 60s and early 70s. That is a group that if they can provide some material benefit to that group, I think they believe that it will it will bring them um, political benefits. Yep. For obvious a decade reasons. or two of I mean, it's these are high huge, propensity voters. These yeah, are high propensity a, it's a, voters. Yeah, they're high propensity voters. It's a huge generation of people. They're living longer. And the idea being that this group, if they were willing to split and no one expected that because they really thought that the older generation was really with Trump all the way. Turns out that wasn't true. It was, it was like 5149 or something. I mean, it yeah. was really surprising. So I think that they're looking at that on a political basis as well as, you know, obviously. And it's smart. Great. It's smart. This is what Democrats have failed to do in the past. They failed to kind of give people what they need also with an eye toward how that politically benefits them. And this time they seem to be, you know, taking the ball and running with it. So that's my contribution to that particular issue. And I, I, hope I think that's a great they go both ways. I think that's a great insight. And let me just add too that Democrats, when, when you, when, when, the, when there's a threat to Social Security and Medicare. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing to me how um, the fortunes of Democrats still ride on a piece of legislation that was created 90 years ago. And, uh, and, and then also one that was created 60 years ago. Barack Obama, I'm convinced, won Iowa in 2008, beating Hillary Clinton because he was raising the specter of Social Security. Uh, he was uh, incorrectly and I think uh, cynically and, and probably not to the best conclusion, you know, claiming that it was in jeopardy, but just simply raising it and saying, I'm going to fix it, you know, like and protect it is is enough to motivate Democratic voters um, and, and vast and, and, and beyond. And, and I think to have a new suite of benefits for Medicare and say, if you vote for Republicans, you're jeopardizing that right. if you vote for Democrats. You're protecting it, I think is and, and I think that's a it's I think your your insight there is very savvy. And I think it's um, it could very well be what's driving this this uh, this this move to increase those benefits, you know, for this is for a program that where there is very high approval rating of it yeah. for people who use it. Um, but it's also could definitely be better to do both. That would be uh, fantastic. And and then, you know, because once you start to, you know, you, you bring another 
you're getting close. You're getting really, really close by bringing in that last five years of, uh, of you know, particularly those, those boomers between 60, yeah. 65, particularly boomers, because that's a very big generation. Yep. You are very, very close to, and maybe you've gone over it, to having more than half of the country under a single payer healthcare system. And then all of a sudden it becomes a lot less of a radical of a prospect of like, hey, wait a second. You take, uh, you know, we're only talking now, you know, 18 year olds to, to, to 59 year olds at that point. And, and a lot on. of them are on the VA. A lot of them are on Medicaid. A yep. lot of them are on Obamacare. So you are in a, you know, this is now government getting close. You're getting very, very you know, close. Healthcare. <laughs> yep. You're getting very, very close. And then the whole thing becomes a lot less of a radical proposition. Absolutely. Uh, and you also start to sort of realize like, you know, you've already taken the insurance companies, I think, to a certain extent, are overestimated as the biggest obstacle. I think the biggest obstacle is becoming more and more clear is really the, the providers, because they don't want yes. any they don't want any discipline in terms of their pricing. They've been getting away with uh, with murder in terms of like uh, what they charge. And, um, you know, it's very tough uh, for these hospital uh, conglomerates to take anything other than like whatever it is. Mm -hmm. 100x uh, <laughs> rate of return on their on their profits. But we're going to have a lot more to talk about with this as it becomes clear as the next week goes by. But I, I suspect, folks, if you don't want to hear any more about this, you might want to uh, not watch us for another <laughs> five or six weeks, because this is this is going to go down. And I will tell you this. When you start talking about child care and UPK, and dropping that um, uh, Medicare eligibility age by five years, when you talk about free community college, where you talk about the extension of the child tax credit for five more years, we are now getting into legitimately structural territory here, where the relationship between government and the yes. people is 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 changing in a fundamental way. You're building expectations. You're building, you're, you're uh, increasing the imagination of, of the role that government can play. These, these are structural changes uh, that I think, you know, will start to get us closer to being in line with the rest of the industrialized world. Right. I mean, you know, where it's, where, 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 you know, the idea of like, um, I need to, you know, I need to uh, stay at this job because of my health care or, you know, um, you know, uh, there's a whole host of benefits that come, you know, in terms of just people's lives uh, and, and their and their lifestyles and their sense of fulfillment. And, you know, and that's hugely important. I mean, particularly, you know, we had almost 100,000 uh, overdose this year. It was announced, um, you know, uh, to a large part. Well, not I mean, a large part because um of 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 what happened with things like oxycontin and um but also there are material um and emotional reasons uh for for this that there are also and and obviously covid um and so uh, this is you know that is not it's not like it's a binary thing you commit suicide or you're a perfectly content person there's a big right. middle ground and, and 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 people are suffering and so uh this is going to be really important um i wanted to get into this story about uh, that's coming out of these uh, books where we're seeing you know the reformation projects of of different people mm -hmm. but i don't think we're going to have time for that uh so um we, we we can talk about that next week as we get more information about 
the potential of, you know, at least some of the military uh, perceived like Donald Trump might be trying to uh, orchestrate a coup here. Uh, sure looked like it to me at the time. Well, it also looked like it to a lot of the people who are being arraigned right now, mm-hmm. um, you know, who are showing up in Washington, D.C. with weapons and anticipating some type of cavalry uh, coming. That never happened. Uh, we'll talk more about that. But I just wanted to say a quick thing, too, that, you know, we're, we're keeping our eyes on this Delta variant. Yeah. Um, I am increasingly of the mind that we're going to have. Another, I mean, we're watching around the country, particularly in the Midwest, states with low vaccination rates, places also like Tennessee, um, uh, you know, Arkansas, and uh, I think uh, we're seeing it in Nebraska to a certain extent, um, and, and about a half dozen other states have seen massive increases uh, in, um, in, in COVID hospitalizations, almost exclusively from people who have not been vaccinated. 99%. But, Right. But I'm I am hearing a lot of stories of people who are vaccinated who are getting covid. Um, I think it's still, you know, 65, 70 percent protection. But, you know, people are getting sick for a week. And obviously there are portions of our population that cannot be vaccinated. And so uh, I, you know, last word of the day, I think we're going to hear more about the the Delta variant um, and and maybe even Delta plus variants. Um, and I think the pandemic is very much not over and, um, we still may have a couple more chapters and they may not be, um, you know, just about returning to normal. It may be about how do you, how do you, once you've already sort of let the, the genie out of the bottle of some sense of semblance of normal, how do you, how do you constrain that if, if things become a problem, but, but we're going to have to talk more about that next week. Heather, as always a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sam. President Joe Biden just recently issued dozens of executive orders aimed at curbing monopolistic corporate practices. Well, at least the executive order had dozens of provisions. Um, while these orders are significant in substance, they also could tease a shift in democratic party philosophy when it comes to monopolies and antitrust we can only hope one that is uh, very much overdue. Here to explain all of this is Zephyr Teachout, law professor at Fordham University, friend of the show, author of Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money. Her piece in The Nation on these Biden executive orders is entitled Joe Biden Just Threw Down the Anti-Monopoly Gauntlet, But One Big Question Remains. Welcome to the show, Zephyr, and good to see you. It's really great to see you, and uh, it's great to be back on the show. Yeah, so uh, it just, one, uh, Zephyr often comes on the Majority Report, the uh, hour that we also air here on the Peacock app, and uh, here she's just here to talk to me, not Sam. Uh, We're going to have a lady power hour to discuss. Absolutely, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So let's just start with explain what these executive orders entail, because I'd imagine that executive power is fairly limited in this area, um, but I was fairly surprised at how close he got to that limit, honestly, just based on Joe Biden's history. Now, as a law professor, as someone who extensively studies monopolies and antitrust, what's your take on these uh, executive orders? I think it's a really big deal. And to explain why it's a big deal, but there's a lot in the the nation piece I wrote, I said, there's one question mark that remains. The truth is that there's a lot of question marks that remain, but I, but I think it was a really significant 
um, moment for a few reasons. But let's step back and look at what what he did um, on a Friday afternoon in the middle of summer. Uh, you know, the hour where you usually are trying to bury bad news. He came out with this extraordinarily, uh, really significant. Um, well, we should say though. I mean, yes, it's bad news or it's good <laughs> news for people like us. But maybe he's burying it for you know other moneyed interests that might be right. paying attention. Yeah. Right. So it, it did, it, I, I think of it as, as really having three significant parts. One is um, the most obvious, which is it, uh, Biden issued 72 directives focused on over a dozen different agencies, um, asking them in most cases, and in some case requiring them um, to issue rulemaking in areas that affect competition broadly. And and that's important because I think we often think, well, antitrust is the Federal Trade Commission. But of course, the uh, Federal Communications Commission, as you well know, um, uh, has as a core mandate um, the decentralization of communications um, uh, and communications infrastructure. The Department of Transportation, the Department of Defense, uh, certainly Health and Human Services, um, all of these separate from the FTC, uh, the Department of Ag, the Department of Labor, all of these have extraordinary rulemaking capacity that affects whether our society is governed by a handful of corporate monopolies or run in a more contracting happens in a more decentralized way, something uh, we'll be looking at in the Department of Defense. Um, and uh, workers and small businesses have more power relative um, to big corporate monopolies. So he issues these 72 directives. Some of these are to independent agencies. So when it comes to like the um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that's an independent agency. Um, fingers crossed, uh, now FTC Commissioner Rohit Chopra will be confirmed to head that agency. Um, he's the person that Joe Biden has selected really an extraordinary leader and thinker. Um, he doesn't have to do anything that Joe Biden tells him to do. Um, uh, Lena Khan, who uh, I think, uh, whose appointment is a really exciting moment for Joe Biden, in some ways a precursor to this big moment. I, I want to um, ask about that because the yeah. Wall Street Journal editorial board is having a field day and they're like losing their minds, but keep they're losing going. their mind. Yes. 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 They're having the opposite of a field day. They're having <laughs> several bad days. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a, they're going it's at a her. Yeah. right. It's a test day. It's a standardized yeah. test day. Right. Exactly. Yes. Um, <laughs> But but Khan does not have they, these are truly independent agencies, but it's still really important for Biden to issue these directives because these agencies have for 40 years been in thrall of a cost benefit analysis approach, um, uh, a lot of. Uh, sleepiness and not engaging in rulemaking. Um, there's a lot more work to be done, frankly. And um, a directive like this tells somebody like uh, Chairwoman Khan, uh, Rohit Chopra, you've got the wind at your back here. You want to make big changes. The uh, president of the United States is behind you on that and is urging you to say, let's ban non-competes. So if you do see uh, um, Khan and the commissioners at the FTC go forward with a ban of non-competes. It won't be as against the Biden administration. It will be fully part of that. Now, others, they got to do what Biden says. So Pete Buttigieg, 
He is not an independent actor here. So when you see the directives to the Department of Transportation, those are directives that should be followed through, which gets to part two of what Biden did. He not only issued these directives, but created a council whose job is to ride herd on these agencies. And I think this is important. You probably don't remember, but maybe if anybody does, you do. <laughs> uh, the, the moment that uh, Chuck Schumer comes out with a big anti-monopoly speech three years ago. I actually uh, do. I yes, do remember that. Right. You. Yes, there we go. There's a speech and then nothing happens. Right. Wow. Um, and it's uh, when it comes to directing agencies what to do. These are agencies as an institutional cultural matter, may not want to do it. They say, oh, no, our job is dealing with this. Why do we have to deal with this corporate power problem? Our job is dealing with um, safety at the FDA. Why do we have to deal with a corporate power problem? Well, you and I know that the corporate power problem is hampering everything the FDA is doing, but it's going to take real work. So having a council whose job is to say, go at it. You've got to do this. Why haven't you issued this rule? What are you thinking? I think that is a is a really central part of what Biden did here, um, because there's going to be a lot of resistance. And the third thing, which I think is the is, it, well, it's not the biggest deal. The, the, they come together as a big deal. If it had been just a speech, that's weak. If it had been just action, that's okay. <laughs> but it, it's how Biden described it. I mean, he used really extraordinary language, and you can see him getting into it. <laughs> you know, this is this was not. Uh, uh, Joe Biden in a hostage tape saying, I guess I got to take on corporate monopolies. It was really interesting. He was mad about non-compete agreements. He was riled up at the way that corporate monopolies are, are not only raising prices, but hurting workers. And in this speech, he did a few things. One is he made very clear that corporate concentration is bad for workers. And this is one of the biggest untold stories is people think monopolization, higher toothpaste, toothpaste prices. And they're right. You know, that's a problem. <laughs> when you see uh, uh, Facebook and Google monopolize the digital ad market, they raise their prices and that hurts small businesses. I mean, the, the, price, the price issue is a real issue, but it is not the only issue. And Biden says what we have seen is reduced wages, growing inequality. This is not something we have heard a president talk about in terms of anti-monopoly law since the Johnson administration, honestly. So that, that was a big deal. And then he said, he used the language of failure. He said, we've been in a 40 year experiment with antitrust law that has failed. So that, that's not just rejecting Donald Trump and Bush and G.W. Bush, <laughs> that is rejecting Clinton and Obama and 40 years of a Democratic and Republican view that antitrust is just about consumer welfare. It's a, it was a major, major um, moment. Uh, of course, I think he's right. <laughs> you know. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just like the point is that if you're saying this right and and we we I supported Bernie Sanders in the primary, uh, yes. as did you. Uh, yeah. I mean, we are not people who are going to be uh, traditionally just jumping at rhetoric or things that, I mean, right. specifically, and this is your field and you understand this better than anybody. So for you to 
be talking about the significance, especially with the historical context of this not being kind of empty directives. The thing that right. sticks out to me is the second prong of what you talked about is that uh, that you know that that commission that is right. going to be put together. Is there permanence in that commission? Say you know President Candace Owens gets elected in twenty twenty four. I mean, <laughs> but. Right. No, seriously. Yeah. Yes. Seriously, though. Right. Um, So as I as I understand it, it isn't legally permanent. So uh, it's a great question, um, because I have been thinking about this commission in the context of an entity called OIRA. Have you guys talked about OIRA on this show? No, no, no. Um, I I think OIRA stands for the Office of Information and Regulatory uh, Agency. And OIRA is an agency without a lot of powers that Reagan gave the power to review and effectively veto executive agency actions. And they have become a major drag. Basically, you want the EPA to act? Well, it's OIRA sitting there saying, well, the EPA shouldn't act because it's going to hurt jobs, you know, Um, and obviously I care about jobs, but they always find that anything that hurts uh, corporate power um, ends up uh, uh, being a bad idea. So it's been a major drag. And, And I actually, one of the things that's missing in this executive order, and I'd love to see is I'd love to see Biden move to undo OIRA's power. This um, council doesn't have quite the formal power of OIRA, but it's kind of sitting, it's like these two different entities sitting on opposite shoulders of agencies. You have the the Reagan creative, stop, go, stop, go. (laughs) Yeah. And and so I think we're going to see, I think the next year will teach us a lot. Does this um, council really have teeth? Um, oh, there's a lot of agencies involved in that this council. Is that a positive thing? Because it gets everybody kind of invested in thinking, oh, yeah, you know, it does turn out we only have two defense contractors. Isn't that a problem? <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, that's just like what we're dealing with in ag. Or is it the opposite, where you see agencies kind of ganging up on, um, you know, pushed by corporate uh, lobbyists ganging up and trying to slow down and saying, we, we've, you know, the language is not well, never. It's later. We have to study this more before we really do a non-compete. Uh, again, I'm not too worried about Khan doing that. So it's. It, I'm really impressed with what Biden did in this moment, but there's got to be follow through. There's got to be follow through. Right. And I mean, I think a lot of that we mentioned Lena Khan a few times yeah. has to do with leadership uh, in yes. terms of appointments. We have to take a quick break, but we will dive further into that when we come back. So we mentioned the name Lena Khan uh, a yeah. few times. And yes, I know she's just one head and one of the right. many uh, people who are going to be influencing this discussion. But she's significant so much so that the Wall Street Journal editorial board uh, owned by the same company that uh, owns Fox News, they are freaked out by her. And, um, you know, I saw Ryan Grimm, the great reporter from The Intercept, tweet, Fox News has AOC. Now the Wall Street Journal editorial board, the more respectable business-sided wing, has Lena Khan as their boogeyman. So just talk about her. And, and, and as you said, these executive orders seem to kind of put the wind at her back, fortify her um, in the FTC. What is her significance? Why is she freaking people out so much? And how do these executive orders kind of work in tandem with her history um, as 
somebody specifically targeting big tech is I yeah. think how she got her bona fides. Yeah. Um, so, and I should just be uh, uh, clear, not only am I a big fan of Lena Khan, but before she went to law school, she was the policy director for a, a teach out woo gubernatorial campaign. <laughs> so uh, a very, have, uh, yes, have woo in the white house and con at the, uh, and con at the FTC. And so I've known Lena personally for a long time and have really profound admiration, not for, only for her intellect, but for her character. This is a, a person of extraordinary um, integrity, um, honesty, and clarity. Um, when uh, she was appointed to be a commissioner at the FTC, she got 21 Republican votes. This is kind of astonishing, disconcerting moment. Like when is the last time, you know, even sort of, Feeling like they're all riled up about big tech right now from. So keep going. I apologize. No, 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 exactly. Yeah. So they're really weird. um, But really important um, uh, cross partisan um, uh, uh, strains here when it comes to antitrust. And and while most of the attention has been on big tech and there's a lot of polling on big tech, which shows that Republicans and Democrats at basically the same level, sometimes it's more Republicans on the grassroots level, um, but a, but a clear majority want a president to do something about big tech. They, but they also when you see polling and I've experienced this when I've um, both been a candidate and worked on other campaigns, people don't like big cable either. They don't like big ag. <laughs> What Monsanto, um, now owned by Bayer, um, has done as a political matter is join together progressives and Trump supporters in hatred of a company that is bad for uh, the land, for workers, for food, and for farmers. Um, so we a lot of the headlines are about big tech, and I care a lot about big tech. But it is actually about more than that. One of the really interesting features um, about Lena Khan's own history that does not get enough attention is that before she wrote her blockbuster um, law review articles on uh, Amazon and how platforms should not be allowed to both own a platform and own entities that compete on it, she was actually an agriculture reporter. (laughs) And she did writing on chicken farming, on seeds, on on Monsanto's control of patents. And actually that um, deep granular understanding of how farming worked, I think gave her clear eyes when she brought it to tech because she didn't come with the sort of the sunglasses that so many people do thinking, oh, it's tech, it's different. It's never happened before. It's like, oh no, I see very similar uh, kinds of patterns of abuse and extraction in tech that you saw in, um, in the ag arena. So she, ha- she comes with both a reporting background and then a, um, a, a great, uh, really famous law review articles, also worked on David Cicilline's um, uh, subcommittee that did the great big tech report last year, which, which did have bipartisan support. So she gets approved. And then Joe Biden, in a surprise move, doesn't just appoint her as commissioner, but appoints her as chair and puts into place somebody who is both has the deep understanding and extraordinary intellectual capacity to turn around this agency. 
Joe Biden is not the first to use the FTC as a key, key position to shape, um, to reshape the economy. FDR did the same thing. Well, that brings me perfectly to where I wanted to go next, because um, I, I, it, it is interesting. Biden's branding as a politician, he likes to think of himself as regular Joe, who takes the yeah. Amtrak and somebody who has at least the uh, the the veneer of being pro-union, uh, of being pro-labor. And it, it seemed more like just a veneer or really just a branding exercise until he actually got in power and he backed the Bessemer Union effort. And yes. now he is, Lena Khan is not somebody that Obama would have appointed, you know, no. 10 years ago. Obama was very much of the uh, kind of Harvard-educated intelligentsia people of more neoliberal Bill Clinton era politics. Yes. That's who he stacked his administration with. So if you could just take us through this demo, very, you know, uh, not surface level, but not, you don't need to go too in depth, but from FDR to now, we had, I guess, right. the, the stages of FDR and LBJ who were more aggressive and anti-monopolist. And then, of course, the neoliberal Bill Clinton era, which gave ceded so much of this territory to the Republicans and basically said, you're right about this argument. You're right totally. about free markets, <laughs> right. right? Like, right. don't worry, we're not trying to win elections. You're totally right. Um, but Biden's and, and Obama continued a lot of that. Biden seems to be changing. So just talk about that significance. I want to relish in the optimism, of a, um, optimism of a story for once. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's it's a really different worldview. And I guess that's why I'm so excited about this. Uh, this moment in the speech, understanding there's a lot of follow through, is the worldview of the flawed um, uh, but really important leadership of both FDR and Johnson is that the Democratic Party is supposed to stand up for little guy, um, workers, small business owners, people in uh, uh, cities and towns against the middlemen who are trying to steal from you. And, and, and one of the key jobs of government is not letting those middlemen sit in a choke point spot and just take money from workers, control workers, and steal from um, uh, small business owners uh, around the country. When Reagan, Ronald Reagan comes into office, um, he makes the center of his uh, a presidency and the key people he brings in sort of a California wrecking crew. And they are coming in with deep uh, racial resentment um, and uh, the center of their campaigns. And they, they talk about, if you read the New York Times from the Reagan era, it's about trying to dismantle um, the civil rights movement and transform corporate policy and, and particularly antitrust. And the way he did it is not by getting rid of the laws, but by putting in place judges and enforcers who said, the point of antitrust law is only to make sure that consumer prices doesn't rise. And in general, if businesses are coming together to combine, it's probably good for everybody. The rising tide lifts all boats. You know, we, we all know this, um, this language. And, and um, Obama, Bill Clinton actually was one of the worst in some of these areas in terms of actually exaggerating some of these policies. Um, uh, really a belief that efficiency and by efficiency, 
Uh, it's often a shorthand for whatever a corporation wants to do is probably good for everybody. Exploitation, not not necessarily, you know, worker, uh, pro-worker right. efficient. Not, uh, workers don't have efficient lives under efficient uh, markets. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. And um, like the language that you see under Johnson and FDR is more about fairness, you know, and this can feel a little it's not just about messaging. But it matters because if judges think their job is basically to wave through mergers and allow corporate activity, you see then the last in the last 10, 12 years, 500,000 mergers worldwide. You see DuPont and Dow merge. You see Walmart buy up Bonobos. You see this sort of constant uh, like Shakespearean concentration of power. Or you see Amazon attempting to buy MGM right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. now we have an FTC that might really look under the hood, as opposed to what they have tended to do is say, okay, we're going to let the merger happen, but here's some conditions. And then after the conditions are violated, they say, well, the merger's already happened. What are we going to do? So, so you, you see again, and I, I don't want to over, I want to both celebrate it and not overstate it, but you see Biden, you know, Joe Biden from Scranton being Joe Biden from Scranton saying, hey, there are places that have been left behind by this concentration and there are abuses that are happening. Um, and, and again, the experiment has failed. The experiment has failed. So it's, it, it's a moment where it's, it's, a, it's a recognition, and I hope this is the recognition, that again, the Democratic Party should stand up against the financiers who are stealing from us. Um, but we know that the financier lobbyists aren't aren't, aren't playing. <laughs> So. Right. Well, I mean, and that's that's the that's the fear. And, you yeah. know, I, I didn't want to but we, we just have a few minutes here. I didn't want to gloss over the the kind of conclusion of your piece in the nation about this open question about the system AG, uh, you know, tackling these very elements from an enforcement perspective. Yeah. Uh, there is a, an oh, Biden still has to appoint somebody there. So yeah. uh, talk about the significance of that appointment if he were to nominate somebody in the vein of Lena yeah. Khan. Um, and, and, you know, it sounds a little granular for some people, but just how that having somebody strong on enforcement would be so beneficial. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm so in the weeds on this. It's like, can't everybody see that one of the strangest <laughs> things that's going on is <laughs> that it has been six months into a presidency, uh, a presidency who has seemed to make antitrust a real priority, bringing in Tim Wu, bringing in Lena Khan, elevating Rohit Chopra. And he doesn't have a person who is responsible for enforcing federal antitrust policy at the Justice Department. So if you're watching, think about it as if you have a president who's talking all the time about you know civil rights and, and never appoint somebody who's responsible um, for civil rights enforcement. It's it's really weird, um, and it's a little weird to have this massive policy, but no person who is the entity within the DOJ who would play a key uh, key role in driving that. So I, this is pure speculation, but you can only imagine the battle royale that is going on behind the scenes, because um, having a... Uh, a person responsible for antitrust at the DOJ who is sort of more in the consumer welfare is everything, efficiency, don't rock the boat, Wall Street Journal, um, you know, the, the basically the honestly, frankly, the antitrust establishment, um, which has 
very strong walls about what is in and outside. Their Overton window is like this big. <laughs> uh, if you bring in somebody like that, well, then big business can breathe a little easier because one, the DOJ will not be out there set looking for ways to stop these abuses. And when you have two agencies that share authority and they're fighting each other, that just takes up an enormous amount of energy. So Biden better, I, I feel like this is a real moment for him. <laughs> if he appoints somebody who is in the Khan, Wu, Chopra uh, direction, that will be very, it'll be make very clear that, that it's not just words and it's not just executive orders. We're going to put the person who is the most responsible for um, uh, this uh, enforcement at the DOJ in this position. And, and, and that weirdness, and, and uh, David Dan has done, you know, spectacular reporting. The prospect has done spectacular per reporting usual, on this. Right. Yes, per usual, <laughs> is that there is, um, I think it was Alex Salmon actually today in the prospect, there's, there's so many different areas where there's no appointee. Um, and I think what it suggests is that Biden is wanting to go big, but also not. And that, that the internal tension is playing out with nobody getting appointed. Well, I mean, we've, they, they, they did like a New York Times profile on uh, on just his leadership style. And it's apparently just cons- constant, constant discussions and deliberation and sometimes oh. indecisiveness a little. So, I mean, that this works in the vein of it. He wants to get it right. Um, you know, so I at least that's the more positive spin on it. So yeah. I think I think that all, you know, fits together nicely in a bow. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I could talk about this forever with you. Zephyr Teachout, law professor at Fordham University. Her book is called Break em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech and Big Money. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I could talk all, all for hours more, too. Great. To, great to be on. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's Ring of Fire podcast. Hey, if you're listening to the free show right now, you're missing all the bonus content our members enjoy on a weekly basis. Go to rofpodcast.com now and become a member. It's your support that keeps us moving forward. On behalf of Emma Vigland and Heather Parton, I'm Sam Cedar. Have a great weekend.